the actually being involved with the science and actually doing the science has always been the motivator, not the money. So I'm like, I'm going to resign. So I literally resigned from teaching so that I could do calculations that were relevant for free to be involved in LIGO and to actually watch the science come out. And I spent three and a half years just living on air, basically, to be able to participate. The University of the Free State presents a series of conversations with outstanding alumni from this great institution. Voices from the Free State. I'm Jean Drew. I'm an equation technician that tries to make black holes collide. And I'm also an applied mathematician that's teaching dynamical systems at the Free State University at the moment. And I have a keen interest in astronomy and testing general relativity. I was born in Bloemfontein. Um, I grew up in Bloemfontein and I went to school here and then I went to university here. And then after that, I decided I needed to see something of the world, which is what led me to having a Fulbright travel grant and going to the US. Growing up in Bloemfontein was wonderful. It's an amazing place to grow up. I like the sort of sleepy pace. My um, family stayed on a plot in Bainsflay. Um, we're sort of, and I'm the oldest of three children, so it's me, my brother, um, who's two years younger, and my sister, who's six years younger. And it was maybe an isolated childhood in the sense that we didn't go off the plot a lot, but it was surrounded by animals and people that came around. I can remember kind of going to my, I never went to like a um, daycare or something. I can remember going for the interview when I went to school the first time. And my mom took me and I kind of walked into the interview with bare feet and like, I think five or six budgies on my back because I love taming birds. And fortunately, the, the, I mean, I didn't know that this was odd. So fortunately, the, this, the teacher that was conducting the interview was very, very fond of birds. And so it went fine and I left with the budgies flying behind me. And... It was, yeah, it was an interesting childhood from that perspective. My dad was very, very keen on raising ducks. So from my earliest memories, he had this incubator. And then when the ducklings would hatch, we would sometimes, if the, egg, if the incubator didn't have the right humidity, they would, the shells wouldn't break. So we'd have to crack open the eggshells and help them out and maybe feed them with a dropper for the first, you know, every few hours. So I was like surrounded with animals and people and was got, given a lot of freedom on the plot. I mean, I can remember um, my brother, I think we must have been about six or eight, yeah, six and eight. We had this competition of we wanted to make 
baked bread is what we called it. And it basically involved making a fire with a whole bunch of, and then trying to bake mud pies. And I can remember this game kind of went on for, for weeks on end and eventually it morphed into, we had a whole bunch of bricks and we each built our fireplace. And we soon lost interest in baking the mud pies, but then eventually it became this fire competition where we would try to keep the fire going overnight. And so you had to learn how to insulate the thing really, really well. I mean, I know this with retrospect, but we just learned that if we sort of surrounded the fire and gave it the right air and stuff to come in, we could keep it going overnight. And then it was always this competition in the morning, we would run outside and see if we could then rekindle the fire to go for another day. Um, and this all went very well until my sister, who must have been about two at the time, um, went and tripped over the bricks and uh, cut her mouth open on the, you know, fell on them. And that put an end to our fire making for a while because I gather my parents realized that it wasn't such a good idea to have these ongoing fires standing outside the house. But, you know, there was sort of that type of freedom, which was nice, which I don't think you'll often get today anymore. Yeah, well, I was given the chance to explore and to sort of follow my own interest. I mean, sort of, um, I think it's Bertrand Russell or somebody that said, you know, sort of boredom is a necessary scientific tool. You sort of need to get to the place where you can reflect. It's like, oh, what happens if I do, with the, do this with this thing? Or I just look at it slightly differently um, rather than continuously being told what to do. I mean, and I think that's also if I look at our like university education at the moment, that sort of free play where people would almost put them put aside as being a waste of time because it doesn't immediately produce results. That is actually necessary if you want to make something completely new. So yeah, in some sense, unwittingly, my parents allowed us to do that simply because they couldn't supervise us all the time. And it was a farm, so you could like go around and play with the animals. And you very quickly, I guess, learned that there were consequences to what you did. I mean, you don't do something silly because if you get hurt, there's like nothing, you know, the, you have to be self-reliant. I mean, I can remember, it's like, it's interesting how languages work. I can remember I was even younger when we were like playing on the lawn and there was a whole bunch of bees and my brother didn't yet know what bees were. And he, he tried to catch them. And I had great difficulty explaining to him um, that, no, you shouldn't go after the bees because they'll hurt you, because he just wouldn't listen to me. Uh, so eventually I'm like, he doesn't know. So I'm like, eventually, look, be careful. Um, they're thorns that can fly. <laughs> and that stopped him. Um, but, you know, there's, yeah, there's merit in just letting children be children. And I was fortunate enough to have a really great childhood. My dad was an engineer, um, a civil engineer. He had a firm in town and he built many of the sewage works around the Free State. And it was a time sort of when there was a population growth in the Free State. So he would be home away f a lot, traveling to like small little towns around the Free State and overseeing the design and the, the earthworks and stuff. And it actually, this is how the, um, <laughs> the, the love of ducks, I think he always had it. But he was very perturbed whenever there were earthworks and the, um, like uh, some of the ducks' nests were exposed or killed or whatever. And then he would bring, he would bring the, the eggs home and try and hatch them. I guess that's where interest started. And there's this beautiful story of him and my mom that were staying when they were just newly married. They were staying in a small flat. 
and he would arrive home with his young engineer, this young engineer with his duck eggs, and hatch them between the um, exhaust of the deep freeze and the fridge. You know, it was sort of warm, and he would use that to sort of help hatch the duck eggs, or rather, he would have to make something hot, obviously. But then he would rear them between the the deep freeze and the um, the fridge, and eventually these things hatched, and you could you could no longer keep them in the in the flat, and that's when they started looking for the plot that they eventually bought, um, because my dad's passion for ducks wouldn't let him abandon the eggs. So um, my mom worked a little bit at the the VNNR, the CSR now today, before she was married, and then gave that up to um, marry my dad and move to Bloemfontein. While we were kids, she just reared us on the farm and then became a maths teacher. She would give like extra maths classes. And then once we were at school, she, would, she, would, she taught math um, at St. Michael's and Unici and stuff. I liked school. Um, because we sort of stayed out of town, I spent quite a lot of time there. I would sort of go in the morning and then go home, you know, sort of late in the afternoon because I couldn't just, you know, it wasn't as if we were close to the school. I like the, the learning of things. I've always been blessed with a tremendous sort of appetite for understanding things. Some of the structure I didn't understand the need of. You know, I was, and I was very, very shy and very, very quiet initially at school. But I, I liked the science. I liked the, the logical stuff. In some sense, I guess I knew what I wanted to be from a very young age. And it was you know, sort of science to understand stuff. High school was nice in the sense that there was the education department. I think that's when the math thing really took off. Um, we had the education centre at Bloemfontein that actually allowed you to accelerate, right? You could take courses ahead of time. And the interesting thing was I didn't actually test gifted. <laughs> so I wasn't actually allowed to join the, the group that was doing math faster, and I, so I heard that some of my friends were doing it and that they could actually like work the curric- through the curriculum at their own pace and they'd be permitted to do this. And I, I went to my mom and I said, you know, I want to do this. I didn't have the IQ test that actually said that I would be part of that special group. Um, so then she went to the, the teacher and she found out what it, how it worked and then they went and asked, you know, could I be part of it? So the lady said, yes, as long as you pass the tests. So it basically happened, I started um, doing this accelerated math through the education centre and it just took off. I mean, I loved the fact that I could work on my own. I loved the fact that there was one deliverable that simply had to get master stuff and do well on the test. So I basically ended up doing matric maths, it was then or grade 12 maths, then um, I wrote the the final exam two years early. And once I'd figured out how nice it was to just work on my own, I started doing computer science as well. So I ended writing both computer science and math in what was then standard eight. So that's grade 10. That opened up other possibilities. So then I could do the advanced maths as well the next year. So I had calculus at school already, which actually turned out to be a tremendously good thing. And then in matric, I could obviously now I had more time, so I filled it up with other subjects. And then I took art at St. Michael's School. And that was an amazing experience for me because I loved art. It, it, it's, it's a strange, strange, strange combination. But I love drawing and I love doing it with 
pen and ink and painting and in some sense capturing what you see but with emotion involved. That strangely is a theme that's gone through in my research. Somebody once looked at my research um, because of the maths I do. She, he says, oh, you pick problems that you can illustrate graphically or that you can see. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. I think very visually. And actually, and what I do is geometry, right? It's, it's basically structures, but geometry and space-time. And somehow actually like visualizing the answer and visualizing the field lines and how things work is the way I look for solutions when other people sort of, you sort of try and stick to the equations. It's not the equations I look at at all. It's what they mean and what they represent underneath. I mean, there's a story about um, Michael Faraday, right? How he visualized the field lines for the first time and he basically described them before people actually got the mathematics. And there's this sort of idea that there are concrete things underneath, even before you actually describe them mathematically, that I find very appealing. I view it as a gift. I don't think people are just genetics. I think environment plays a role. Because I've thought a lot about what fosters creativity. I think there are also people that have grown up in very difficult environments that are very creative. I mean, I've, yeah, I've literally viewed it as a gift. Um, and I view my role as a teacher also as, in some sense, recognizing what people have naturally and trying fostering that rather than having a set of rules or, or even a solid theory like genetics where it comes from. I mean... Like, you have, you have beautiful examples, and we have many of them in South Africa as well. You know, like Beethoven. Somebody once gave a profile of people that would naturally, under these, under our, in our society, be aborted. And he meets every single one, right? He, had, he was in a family he, that was below the poverty line, so many children. And he had this tremendous challenge. I mean, when many people thought he wouldn't go nowhere. I mean, there's another case, a student that's uh, impacted me quite a lot just because I like talking to him that I met when I taught at um, the U University of the Western Cape, a Gary Andrews that really grew up with really a lot of challenges, which, and he has this ori amazing originality and this way of looking at the world that I respect. I mean, that's not a conventional way of doing things. So yeah, environment's important. You can do a lot to foster things. And I've been at some of the best universities in the world and I know there are certain things you can do to, to facilitate people working out their talents. But the basic base creativity, I mean, it's the spark. I don't think there are rules there. I think it's a gift. Oh, what my dream was as a child. I mean, I wanted to know how things work deeply. I, I wanted to know how the universe worked. I mean, I used to look up at the night sky and wonder about that. And I know that was even, that was like my student job when I was at the Free State. I was, became one of the like operators of the Boyden Telescope with Professor Marty Hoffman. And I would go there in the evenings and just explain to people and like aim the telescope and it was quite tricky then because it wasn't really tracking correctly so you sort of had to do a few little um, tweaks to get it to to keep on the star 
And I would look at that and I would like explaining it to people and I would wonder how the structures were made. I mean, there's a beautiful nebula, they call it the Eta Carina. It's, it comes from a star that exploded and it blew the gas out and it looks like a flower, like a double flower. And then what happens was it exploded, the gas went out and then it exploded again and then the, the shock wave makes the gas light up into these very, very fine, like a bulb of a, around the star. I mean, if you look it up, on, on, you can see these beautiful pictures. Anyway, I would, look at, I would track this thing and look it up and then show it to people and like watching what their response was. But I also wondered what made it look just like that. Much, much later, sort of going through the various courses at the various universities, I now understand how it was made in a way. Um, but the sense of wonder has never disappeared. I didn't know initially what, that I wanted to do gravitation. I mean, I don't think you know that, uh, sort of in that detail. But when I got to the mathematics and when I got to Einstein's theory of relativity and I saw how beautiful it was and sort of how powerful the techniques for actually working with it was, then it was sort of like you worked into a natural, you know, you, I, I found my pond that I wanted to play in. But my dream has also changed. Um, I mean, initially the dream was just to have knowledge, right? And then it was sort of to create your, to be creative with and to find new knowledge. And now it's sort of, I want to do that, but I want good company. And I want to take the next generation of students with me. And I want them to be South African students. Yeah, how I ended up at the Free State University, it was... Yeah, it was local. It was close. And I could go from home and the, it would financially actually be viable. It was clear that I wanted to do science. And we sort of spoke to a number of people and they said, well, there's certain basic things you have to learn anywhere. At least the undergraduate, you just have a solid foundation and the teaching at the Free State was quite good. And then when you do postgraduate stuff, then you could look further afield or maybe it's good to change anyway from universities. And that's kind of what happened. I mean, I went to the Free State from my parents' homes. So I stayed at home and just commuted in every day. And I could still sort of work on the farm. I mean, at that point, my dad was away from home a lot. So I could, like, help on the farm and sort of help my mom and then still study at the same time. Student life, I mean, I sort of had my, my um, the academics, the academics was a big part, and the observatory was also a big part, and there were a lot of interesting people going through, or sort of coming to listen to talks there, so it was a broader Bloemfontein scene, you know, you, you have people, they bring their kids, their family, and you sort of get talking to them about things, you know, so I sort of, it wasn't just student life per se, there were student groups that were interested, but the like people in, that did music and stuff would come through there as well. I had a good bunch of friends, right? And we sort of did stuff at university together. Just I was never a big um, party person, but I liked having deep discussions and having coffee with people. What also kind of happened was I started riding horses. <laughs> and <laughs> that sort of took me away from the uh, the university into a very different realm of people. I, I like competing on dressage horses. So I would go to shows over the week. I would sort of get the academics done during the week and then aim and go to shows over the weekend and go camping there. That That was fun. It was something completely different. And I guess in a way it's also... 
a lot of the way I, tra- I think of training people, I, th- I can see the original ways of thinking about it developing there because there's a lot of structure in how you train a dressage horse and how you don't face him with too much before he's ready for it and then sort of build his strength up and then start asking him. You know, it's very important to lay a good foundation before you ask for more difficult movements. A short bio of my career, I, I, I went a very long route to return to Kofsis. Okay, so, so I guess what happened was once after four years of staying in Bloemfontein I'd, or sort of studying in Bloemfontein, growing up in Bloemfontein, going to school in Bloemfontein, I decided I needed to see something more of the world. And I applied for a Fulbright travel grant. The one place that I wanted to go was Cornell um, because it was in the middle of nowhere. I didn't want to go to a big city. And there were a lot of famous physicists there. Like they had a very good nuclear and a theoretical physics program. And I'd been studied on a bursary at the UFS from NEXA, which was the South African, the then South African Atomic Energy Corporation. So I was interested in nuclear physics and in some sense the power you could get from nuclear physics. Um, And it ended up that... Cornell actually offered me a full um, fellowship for two years. So I ended up doing graduate school over there, which was great because they paid for me. And it was a time at which our exchange system or exchange had just um, fallen through the floor. And so without it, it wouldn't have been possible for me. So, yeah, I went and did a research, I had a research associateship at Cornell. I spent five years there. I did the graduate courses. I like their structure in which there's quite a lot of advanced courses that you have to do before you can actually get access to your PhD or start working on your PhD. So I did that, and that actually built a foundation. Everything I was lacking, I could... I mean, it was like... I was like the sponge. I can remember I stayed in this basement, which was cold, but it was very cheap. (laughs) And I didn't mind the cold because there's a lot of snow in Ithaca. It's very, very white in winter. So anyway, I stayed in this basement and I can remember waking up in the morning and I'd fallen asleep with all these books around my bed because there were so many things that I could suddenly learn and the, the people were there and that knew it, like statistical physics and mechanics. And it was stuff I really wanted to know. So I was like this thirsty person that <laughs> found something to drink from and, and just couldn't stop, I mean. So it was intense, but it was a very, very busy time where I could learn stuff. And I ended up starting a project with somebody and then it not working out. So when it didn't work out, I ended up, there was a guy I respected a lot in astronomy. And I knew his students that were working for him. I went to them and I said, hey, what's the guy I like to work with? And they said, great, I've learned so much. And so I had a graduate advisor called Sol Tukolsky that worked on black holes. And I wanted to work on black holes, but he wouldn't let me. <laughs> so what happens is they tend to pick their projects, and he was working on neutron stars at the time. And because of the nuclear physics interest, he says, no, you're going to work on neutron stars. But I was like, no, I want to work on black holes. And he says, no, do this project first. You'll learn a lot of skills, and then you can choose what you want to do afterwards. So I ended up working on neutron stars, um, sort of how they pulsate and what, whether they give off gravitational radiation. And it was, it was right. I learned a lot of mathematical stuff. He's very good numer- at numerical things, like some of the numerical algorithms a whole bunch of people use 
he made. Um, in fact, he's got this book called Numerical Recipes. It's like the cookbook for computer scientists. Um, and I learned a tremendous amount from him. I can remember some of the most valuable times I had was simply, he always used to go to lunch at a certain place and he would take his students along. And I, those are some of the most valuable times. I remember sitting over and there's a whole group of us and we just discussed things from physics to life to how structures work and how <laughs> admin systems work because he became the department head at the time. And it was amazing. It was also good because the project he'd set me on was a hot topic at the time and because I could give a definitive result, um, I could win sort of the next the fellowship uh, to Caltech, which was um, so I won the Fairchild Fellowship, which was basically you could um, spend two years there. I ended up spending five years at Caltech, but I spent I think it was originally a two year fellowship, a three year fellowship that didn't have any restrictions on who you had to work for, what you had to do. So it was the open fellowship. And there I got to work on black holes. <laughs> and, but it turned out the, the, pre, the, the neutron star preparation was very good and it set me up for a lot of things that happened later on that would have been useful. So, so I, value, I value him sort of stopping me from going my own way. <laughs> um, so, so at Caltech I did go my own way and I got interested in how you actually test relativity. And it was the time at which gravitational waves were, they were building the LIGO experiment and Kip Thorne was involved in sort of overseeing that, but mainly in the theory support, sort of working out the source modeling and generally being the great grandfather figure of keeping the whole thing on track and because it's difficult with these huge collaborations to keep things going. So there I learned this tremendous amount scientifically about black holes and the mathematics behind them, but I had this great mentor in the, the form of Kip that I simply just listened or learned from his example, learned how he interacted with a big experiment, with the, the people that came through with funders, with, yeah, I mean, it, it's very hard to quantify in all the lessons I learned from him. And he's, 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 he's a great man. I mean, the irony, of course, is that the first two years I was intimidated in part, but also stubbornly going my own way that I didn't, until we sort of clashed and then and then we then I sort of started speaking to you yeah I, and learned a lot from him if you look at how mathematics in, in part began right how calculus began it was Newton trying to understand how to describe planetary motion and he sort of equated um, an apple or this is the, the legend it basically an apple falling from a tree to a planet falling around the sun, repeatedly missing the sun, and st so remaining in orbit. And he worked out calculus to describe, I mean, this is a caricature. He worked out calculus to describe how this was going to happen. And then he worked out his famous laws. And one was the law of gravitation. Okay, so that's basically, in a way, how my, our field began, in some sense, the, the time at which gravitation, the name even became popular. But what was interesting is Newton knew his theory was broken. He knew that uh, he had two other laws that everything has an, if you push on something, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And his law of gravity was different. In other words, he had this one over R squared law um, for attraction that happened instantaneously. And this bothered him tremendously. 
He said, you know, it's like the spooky action at a distance. I don't know what conveys the force from one side, from, say, the sun to the earth. Whereas he's, we had one set of laws that predicted this was necessary, and then he made the second theory that didn't. And so this worried him, and he's like, what am I going to do about that? But it didn't worry anybody else, right? Because what his theory did predicted so accurately how projectiles would work, how the, the planets would move around the sun, um, it literally changed the worldview at that time. Um, and so for about 400 years, even though Newton said quite plainly that his theory was incomplete and possibly broken and he was worried about it, uh, his theory worked. It was only when people looked at Mercury not going in a steady ellipse around the sun, sort of that the ellipse sort of moved a little bit, that they thought there was a problem. But what was also interesting is within Newtonian gravity, you could, they could still explain that. And then Einstein came along and through a, a series of very good intuitive arguments, he made the theory of general relativity that basically solved Newton's problem. It explained how the force or the gravitational force could actually act at a distance um, and that it was actually the curving of geometry itself. So Einstein made his theory of general relativity and what is amazing about that theory is, one, in some sense, it was an intuitive and a mathematical leap, and then the predictive power that resulted after the theory was made was tremendous. So, I mean, he predicted that Mercury would process. The theory of relativity predicted that um, light would be bent by a gravitational field, which they saw when they observed the eclipse with Eddington. It predicted that time would run slow in a gravitational field, which we measured with the GPS systems. You know, the GPS satellites that everybody uses in their phone? Um, there's a correction if you do the mathematics for that. There's a correction term that actually takes into account that the signals travel slower in the gravitational field, and without that correction term, it wouldn't work. The number of predictions it made was tremendous. That's the sign of a really, really good fundamentally new theory. And one of the predictions it made that Einstein understood really, really early on is that there would be gravitational waves. Much as an uh, electron that moves up and down gives off radio waves or light waves, um, Einstein said the same thing is going to happen if you have two really massive objects, say um, two 10 solar mass objects moving around each other, they are actually going to make waves in the, the fabric of space-time. And what LIGO was, was the first direct observation of these gravitational waves. So LIGO um, stands for Laser Interferometric Gravitational Wave Detector. And what it is, is simply four masses that you hang, and then you actually can watch the waves go past. Okay, these waves are really, really small, and this is why... LIGO is such a feat or worthy of the Nobel Prize is they basically measured changes in distance that are, I think, the millionth of width of a hydrogen atom over four kilometers. So it's a, it's a technological feat to actually measure that such fine variations in distances. It's a technological feat to actually build such a big um, instrument because what it basically is is four masses that are basically hung. And what a gravitational wave does, 
unlike an electromagnetic wave that moves, just moves an electron up and down, it's got a different structure. They call it a quadruple structure. So if a gravitational wave would work, go through, say, a circle, what it would do is would like squash the circle in the one way and it would bulge the other way and then a few and then it would go in and it would like wobble. You know, if you like were to take one of these squishy balls, um, you know, or yeah, fill a water balloon, and you were to take in your hand, you would like squash it the one way, it would bulge out the other ways, and then you would let it go and it would like vibrate like that. That's basically what space-time does when a gravitational wave passes through it. And so what LIGO did for the first time was it actually measured this. Um, it was not the first experiment designed to do so, but it was the first one that succeeded. And so it was the direct verification of what gravitational waves actually, that they actually exist physically and path through space-time. That was important, right? It's one of the biggest results in the last, yeah, well, in the last couple of years. It's definitely worthy of the Nobel Prize. But what was interesting is was the gravitational waves were predicted very soon after Einstein's theory, like uh, in the 19, sort of 16 or so, I'm, I might be wrong, but it was very, very soon. It was a year or two after Einstein did his theory, he worked out the implications because it solved Newton's problem, right? It solved the fact that just as an electric field can transfer energy through waves, so too that was how the gravitational field in some sense can transfer energy. So it was no longer the spooking action at a distance that had worried Newton so much. So that's why it was a big result. What was also amazing was when Kip went to um, Congress to try and get the funding approved for it, he was very, very clever, and that's something I learned from him. He never made a false promise. In some sense, he was entirely honest with them. He went basically and said, we want you to fund this multi-billion dollar project. And for the first five to 10 years, we're gonna measure absolutely nothing. Um, and if we manage to measure absolutely nothing and get the noise level down to a certain um, sort of requirements that he set, then you should give us the next amount of money equal to that, and then we'll measure something. So it was very, very interesting to actually learn how this was done. Um, and very, very interesting sort of in the maturity of the US government to actually be willing to basically spend this amount of money, not measure anything, but to prove the technology that it could, and then go on and, and then still see the value in continuing it and then give sort of giving the next the next thing to build you know so there was very clear design uh, specifications that were met but the sort of the deferred gratification of being prepared to go so far out on a limb um, experimentally um, to actually and to believe the scientists when they accurately gave what the difficulties were and what they were going to actually achieve that was amazing. It was interesting for me to see that actually, that it's not necessary at all to create a false impression. In fact, the, the pure honesty of what he'd said, as well as the motivation for the value of what was measuring it, and the fact that he was listened to, and that the nation was willing to invest so much in it to actually achieve it, that's amazing to me. So I learned from the sort of managing expectations, but never, you know, do great things, be honest about them. Don't treat the people that are giving you money like fools, right? You know, just put clearly out what the what the risks are. And 
to actually pull it off. It was amazing. And it was not at all obvious when he started that this would be possible, right? It's truly thousands of people and institutions that worked together that actually pulled it off, including some strange stories where he funded some Russians because they were very good at vacuum technology um, while the Soviet Union was collapsing, you know, um, or the sort of the, just the existing structures in the Soviet Union were changing. You literally kept them alive so that they would contribute to LIGO and a lot of the stuff in the vacuum technology and the noise isolation comes from there without which the experiment would not have worked. So he had this wisdom to just do the right thing at the right time, which was amazing. When I came back, I started working at Stellenbosch University doing applied math. And I was, it was just when this, when LIGO was making its discoveries, um, you know, was the first gravitational wave was measured. And I was so keen to be part of this. And I was so frustrated because I was applying for money and I was not getting it and I was wasting all this time doing so. <laughs> that eventually, um, and I was, uh, uh, we have a very high teaching load, right? So that we could actually, that doesn't cost anything to try and, in some sense, minimize that for, you know, for people that actually want to do research. So our structuring, so I was, I was just spending all my time teaching, applying for things that weren't approved. So eventually, and I wanted to be part of the gravitational wave discovery, so eventually I was like, okay, what are you going to do now? Um, and to me, the actually being involved with the science and actually doing the science has always been the motivator, not the money. So I'm like, I'm going to resign. So I literally resigned from teaching so that I could do calculations that were relevant for free to be involved in, um, in LIGO and to actually watch the science come out. And I spent three and a half years just living on air, basically, to be able to participate. I mean, is that a job, a career a direction I'd advise for any, everybody? I would say no, but in my case, it worked, right? I was part of it. I was invited by friends, amazingly, all over the world, like to India, to Copenhagen, to help, to be part of the discussion, to be part of the discussions. Um, and, I mean, some of the stuff, Kip contacted me even before he got the Nobel Prize, and he says, you know, I'm doing this show. It's also, once again, the intersection of science and art. I'm doing this show where I want to put to music with, all the ideas in gravity, and I'm going to sort of narrate it, but I, want, but I want a visual display as well, and I want, you know, somebody else is going to put it to music. And so I spent a considerable time during this time actually taking a lot of the simulations I'd done for how planets and stuff move around a black hole under unusual circumstances, learning how to animate it and make him, him a movie, which actually then made it into his Nobel Prize lecture. I mean, um, so, so it was this bizarre situation where I was just doing the science I love, not being paid for it. But, you know, it, it did get it into the Nobel lecture, which I liked. So I sort of became the first unemployed African physicist even ever to have their like two seconds or 15 seconds in a Nobel lecture during this time. It's a gamble. I don't. Yeah, it worked out, right? I, th I, th I think the lessons from those three and a half years from living on air was: remember in the beginning, I said my 
what I'm aiming for has changed, right? I initially wanted to have science for its own sake. Then I viewed sort of my talent of sciences buying things for other people. Um, and that's also not entirely right. It should be celebrated for its own way. But then eventually when I wanted to do it so badly that I was willing to give job up or the payment up to just to pursue it. And then I actually, and then I sort of got, invo got into the Nobel pricing, which many universities would have made hay out of. Um, I realized that I was alone. It, it was a singular achievement in the sense that it was a very good achievement, but also in the sense that I had not achieved that I wanted to take my students along to do it. And basically that's what led me to accept the university position at yours, is that I wanted to teach again. But this tension between actually getting it funded, having time to speak to your students, having time for your research, there are a lot of tensions in our university that pulls that skew and we should try and find creative ways of going around it. We should try and structure groups that are actually a village, a, a mini village that allows our scientists to grow and mature without ex expecting them er to do everything at all times. And without sort of putting this tremendous pressure of publish and do all these several things, just simply be creative, find the best answer to a solution. It's a good question. I mean, there's this tension in science between doing science for its own sake, spending a whole bunch of money, as you said, putting men on Mars, or you have real problems like poverty and hunger in Africa. And nowhere is it more stark than, in, say, in Africa, right? I mean, the debates you can even bring home, like, should our nation be building the SKA or Meerkat, which comes at a cost to the smaller research groups that arguably could have a greater impact in actually fostering local creativity than, say, for the SKA. And that's a decision that, that people need to take. My take is I tend to oscillate. I've seen the benefit of what an organized scientific effort can do, right? I've seen the effort of a nation that tried to measure gravitational waves that arguably at the time it was measuring it, had no clear benefit to the society. But I do believe it will have long-term benefits. So just like LIGO, which I once again understand more clearly than what Elon Musk is trying to put men on Mars. Um, so, so LIGO had a very clear technology drivers. In other words, there were certain things they need to do, needed to get done to actually make the measurement that would push research and that would have other applications, like the lasers, the seismic isolation, the new way of actually doing the measurements with pumped lasers, where they actually put the lasers in a certain quantum mechanical mode, which was also very, very new. Like the data analysis to actually make the calculation, the understanding of noise in the experiment. Like one of the things, little projects, side projects that I just, I didn't even work on it, I just became interested on it, is they had certain specifications on the mirrors that they put into LIGO that required a tremendously high rate of reflectivity. And the way you make a reflective mirror is you basically, or the way they were making it, you basically take very, very fine layers of two different materials, that's a quarter wavelength or so, of, li of the light that you're trying to reflect, and you layer them on top of each other very, very smoothly, very, very evenly. Um, and so one of the problems that they had is when they made the, to make a more accurate measurement, they had to put more laser power on it. 
And then the moment they heat, put the more laser power on these mirrors, they heat them up, or it basically heats up the surface. And they wanted to work with that. So just understanding how that mirrors work, how the lasers work, has other applications. It has defense applications. It has um, material applications. And so the project on its own, even without measuring gravitational waves, would have paid in a way doing that. So I'm not going to knock like a large-scale effort that way. You know, there are benefits to it. When it comes to putting men on Mars, I, my personal opinion is I'm much more for robots, okay? Because I used to work, when I was at Cornell, the, 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 the people below me, <laughs> the, the floor below me, were the group that were actually putting the rovers on Mars. And so I like that way of doing it. It's much cheaper. Um, the technology development's still there. You still get the information out. So my personal, I would not be putting people on Mars if it was my choice. I guess my, my failing is I'm much more for teaching people locally to be creative. And I mean, I made that choice personally as well. And sometimes I've had to think about it. I mean, when I decided to come back to South Africa, that was probably one of the most difficult decisions I made because I knew, I mean, I didn't come with my eyes closed. I knew the funding implications. I didn't know at that point that I was going to spend three years just funding my own, <laughs> my, my own curiosity. Um, but I knew that there would be implications. But I decided for me personally that I, you can't solve a problem without knowing it. And you can't actually train people unless you walk around in their shoes and understand it. And I was in a unique position where I knew the background of my students. I knew the story, South Africa story, which is an amazing story. And I wanted to be part of building it further. I can totally see how people can get on a runaway train and just run off to science. I can see the benefits even of that train. Um, I think doing that unbridled um, without with losing sight of what other things you could actually be doing with the money um, is not always the wisest thing, but I'm not going to judge, you know, I, I'm not going to judge Elon Musk for his choices, say. I admire a lot of what he's done. I think he's created more jobs in science than any other project that is striving to alleviate poverty, say. So. <laughs> um, so, and I mean, in South Africa also, there's this tension, right, with the SKA is... You know, do you spend it because do you appropriate what's it sixty percent of your DST budget into astronomy when you could be spending it on chemistry groups that make catalysts and medical groups and things like that? I'm not making that decision. What I do know is that now that it has been built, there's a lot more we can do with it than what we are doing. There's a potential for growth. And we do need South Africans to start analysing the stuff and looking at it and benefiting by it. And so rather than, once again, living in the past and saying we shouldn't have done this, I believe it's actually a good thing. But I do believe we must look very carefully on how we use it um, and how we position our own youth to benefit by it. Because one of the things with... There's a difficult in economics when you have a person with fewer resources coming in trying to compete with um, the big groups. And that's basically what we're doing with, um, with Meerkat, is that we haven't really made the group structure that will permit our youth to develop into using it. We're sort of sitting and expecting the foreigners. I mean, that was one of my frustrating things, honestly, coming back here, is I'd seen what had happened in LIGO, 
And somehow the de facto assumption in many of the things is that all the good science is being done overseas and we're, not actually, we're running after them and we're not actually giving our own youth a chance to develop their own creativity. And that's something we can change. It's a strange project. Um, <laughs> it's the long shot. I like the long shots. So my current little game... <laughs> is, so I worked, when I was at Caltech, I worked in their source modeling department, or sort of, not department, sounds like I've made the university a, a company now. That's why I said I'm an equation technician, I make black holes collide. Um, so I worked in the numerical relativity group, which basically puts, in order to be able to measure these gravitational waves, you need a very good prediction of what they're going to look at like. It's basically like, it's such a noisy experiment you basically have to find a way of tuning the experiment to what you're going to see. You know, just like on a radio station, to, in order to be able to pick up the, the song, you choose to a specific channel, and then you know that, then, then you have a set of circuitry that locks onto that channel and you use that. So the same idea works in the LIGO experiment. You sort of have an, a rough idea of the possible types of signals you can get, and then your analysis tools tuned to actually measure those signals. And so I was in the group that basically was doing solving Einstein's equations to see what they would predict if you had two heavy objects spiraling around each other and then colliding. And what these simulations involve is um, it's a supercomputer effort. It's basically drove the supercomputing effort in the United States for a long time. It started in the 1980s. Um, and you run the simulation, you couple, you've basically got um, 36 coupled differential equations, you run them on uh, 256 um, uh, sort of CPUs in this giant cluster, and initially, when I started working, you would run, have to run one simulation for months. And a lot of people um, started... You know, it, it was, you had a lot of competing teams. It was a hot topic. And so I became more interested in the theorems that sort of describe the dynamical space-times. And those actually stopped developed, developing, you know. So there's a difference between a numerical answer and an analytic answer. A numerical answer, you run it for three months, you get an answer for one example. An analytic answer, you can learn a lot more about. Like our solutions for black holes, individual ones, are analytic answers, which basically informed all our intuition about what black holes do and how they bend light and how it works. Um, so there are a number of unsolved projects there that I'm actually going after analytically. And the one is if you simply just take two black holes and you smash them head on, can you find an answer that describes that? If you look at the analytic problems in relativity, you had Schwarzschild that got the black hole space-time a year after Einstein gave his theory. Then you waited about 50 years until a Kerr in, I think, 1963 got the next solution of a spinning black hole. And since then, there have been very, very few. So I'm currently working on the, the head-on collision simply because I don't have the computing infrastructure or, in fact, the manpower to run a group that could compete in any way numerically with the numerical groups abroad. So I want my own space-time I can play with, but I'm going to get it a different... I want to, I'll have to get it a different way. I think it's definitely worthwhile. I mean, if you think of the UFS 
strategically right. It's this university in the middle of South Africa, in the middle of the Free State Province, the main nucleation point in the Free State Province. I think if you invest in it and plough back, you basically have a chance of economically establishing the whole province. You know, it's not, to me, it's not a question of um, being worthwhile or not. How to do it wisely is a better question. And how to do it in a way that is sustainable and ideologically robust is another question. I mean, what I would love is having a closer connection between industry and the students itself, right? I think it would make the curriculum more relevant for the students. And that's not meaning to say stop doing basic science and stop doing mathematics. But if there was a, a stronger link between the industries and the students, and I mean they are, that's not to say they're not, right? I know Sassel has an active role, but like engineering firms and stuff, I know UFS has started an engineering program, which I think is actually a good move. But I would love students having more practical experience. I would love the consequences of failure in a way. You need to make something that if, into my, my child example, if you have a fireplace that go, where the fire goes out, you need to actually learn how to fix it. And I think alumni, especially that have had work experience, has a role to play there. Voices from the Free State is produced and directed by Francois Van Skulvik and Keenan Carlzer. Post-production is provided by the UFS Alumni Office and production support by Adrian Hall. This podcast is produced for the UFS International Alumni Program. For further information regarding this series or to propose other alumni guests, please email us at alumnipodcasts at ufs.ac.za. Any views and opinions expressed in this recording are those of the individual guests and should not be attributed to the University of the Free State.